This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space. There is one unequivocal truth. If you are better educated, your children are going to be better educated. You are going to be healthier. Your children are going to be healthier. You're going to be less reliant on social services because you're making your own way. You're going to vote more often and be the good citizen that we know we need you to be. And so universities are a pathway. Do we need to be more engaged in the social enterprise? Absolutely. I've spent my entire life building partnerships with local communities. And in fact, when I was at Ohio State, I think what we did is we held hands and we walked across High Street to the neighborhoods across our street and said, your welfare matters to us and we should be a player in making your life better. Because we live in communities, we live in cities, we live in states. We, we live, live together. We live together. And our walls need to be uh, more porous, more flexible. We need in and out. And this is just as true for our international community. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplores.com. No great leader I've ever met takes sole credit for the achievements of their organization. They realize leadership is a broad church. Nancy Zimfer captures this well when she says her many successes were achieved, quote, through the hands of many. If you're an aspiring leader, you'll find lots of useful insights from this episode. A small-town girl who rose to the presidency of three major universities— Nancy now plays a leading role in guiding college athletics in the United States as a member of the Knight Commission. Our conversation today explores her paths to these posts, her vision of leadership, the science of getting better, and her views on the role of universities in communities and in society at large. So Nancy Zimfer, Dr. Zimfer, so good to see you again. We've known each other for a long time, but rarely been within 200 miles of each other. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. So I know fair bits about your life as a, an academic and a university leader, and there's lots there I want to explore, but tell us about how you came to that path. I don't know anything about the young Nancy Zimfer and what shaped her and put her on that road. 
Well, you know, we uh, seem to have been in different geographic locales, but always it comes back to Columbus and to Ohio, and I'm very proud of that and proud to be back in Ohio myself, actually. I grew up in southeastern Ohio on the Ohio River, and uh, today I'm perched high above the Ohio River in Cincinnati. So I always look at the flow upriver from Cincinnati to Gallipolis uh, with fondness, knowing that those boats that cross my path here cross Gallipolis. So I have a great affinity and affection for my upbringing, southeastern Ohio is always last at the table, it seems, uh, and yet there's so much richness about the uh, 32 counties that the feds label as Appalachian. So what happened uh, in this small community called Gallipolis, which is mispronounced by many. Because it's spelled like Gallipoli, right? Yes. Well, it's actually called the, the French 500 city, the French city founded by the French. And A lot of that Elan is still with us, and the fleur-de-lis is the iconic statement of of a French city. So that's who we are, but uh, we were blessed with many fabulous teachers in our K-12 system. Uh, My mother was one of them, and my girlfriends and male friends in high schools, their mothers were also teachers in this fabulous thing called the Gallia Academy High School, which was a first founded academy in the Northwest Territory. So it has great history. And uh, we had a great uh, pathway to college. I mean, a lot of people in our classes, my class of about 150, went on to college, I have to say, There were these two roads divided. They either headed to Ohio University or to Ohio State. Uh, But we also had a few that ended up at Yale and and other prominent uh, places. Uh, My brother and sister were both educated at really extraordinary universities. My mother was a teacher and my father was uh, trained as a teacher and was a school principal and superintendent for a while. So that path took me right to Ohio State. And I came as a freshman in 1964. And I left in 1998 to become a (laughs) university president. Wow. Wow. (laughs) You know, that was a 30 plus year uh, adventure at a single campus. That doesn't happen very often. And and frankly, it shouldn't, Kathy. Yeah, it's very rare to go straight on through all your degrees and then be hired onto faculty. That's a A lot of people would say it's not a good thing. It took a lot of sweat equity, I'll tell you (laughs) that. I didn't go right from the PhD to a faculty line. I spent eight years as an administrative staff member. And, you know, they tell you to go. uh, But here's the first of my signature titles. I was a place-bound female scholar. Now, you Ah. can't find that on Google or Wikipedia. (laughs) What, What does that mean? It's a condition. It means you can't move. For whatever reasons, either family or uh, usually family, frankly, but uh, there are other reasons that keep people anchored in a particular community. For me, uh, at the time, I was married to someone who was involved in Ohio politics and Ohio government. And you don't just pick up and take all that history and move it to another state. You know that. Right. So I made the best of a situation because I, I was afforded some leadership roles at Ohio State that ultimately resulted in a faculty appointment. And miraculously, I'm not even sure how, became a dean of the College of Education. It is that we have a propensity to look outward. Uh, That's why 
people in your doctoral program tell you to move on. We know what you know. We taught you what you know. So we want to bring in people who know something different than what we know. And we want to place you elsewhere to carry on the knowledge you gained at Ohio State somewhere else. That just didn't happen. Yeah. Well, you also keep learning from other people if you go on and as an academic, move around a bit, just as you say. It is that shakeup that teaches us. And so I, I think I'm very grateful for the patience that the institution paid me to let me work it out locally. But ultimately, I, I did find a way to move out, if you will, and uh, seriously thought about moving from a deanship to a provostship. I'll just give a compliment to every provost I've ever known. The job is too hard. I couldn't possibly have done that job. Well, what do university provosts do? I mean, is it like a chief operating officer of the university? Is there some parallel or it's a thing unto itself? Well, that's a a great question because essentially it is the chief operating officer, but we are an academic enterprise. So that is typically not assigned to a chief operating officer or or a CFO, chief financial officer. It almost always falls to the chief senior academic officer who runs the academic enterprise. And many things, almost everything, reports through the academic chief or senior officer to the president. And so it's a tough, it's a very complex job. And, And many, of course, many provosts go on to be presidents because they've practically done the job uh, yeah. as provost. So it's, it's very interesting, but I skipped that. And uh, <laughs> I, will, I will tell you why. I interviewed for a provost position at a major university. And at the end of the interview, sort of the dinner to close the deal, I think the president asked me something like, why do you want to be provost? And I mistakenly said something like, because I like to be in charge. And I mean that in the most humble way. I do think that you know what your skill set is and you know when being in charge is better for the organization. I was just being kind of honest, not flamboyant or braggadocio. And I think she might have said back to me, I don't think this is a good fit then because you know, she <laughs> I'm was the I'm in charge. <laughs> so it taught me a little lesson about, you know what? I was ready to be a president and I landed one. When did you, how did your sense of yourself as a leader or your potential for leadership, was that sort of always present? Like you were, you know, leader of your Girl Scout troop or something like that, or did that grow and emerge? I think it grew. It did turn out that as a senior in high school, there are a lot of jobs that students get as leaders in a high school. And I seem to be chairing president of this, that, and the other. I was the editor of the yearbook. I took on tasks that seemed to need to be done, but nobody else was going to do them. And I developed a bit of a pattern there, but I so exhausted myself in my senior year in high school that I think it took a little break as as an undergraduate student. I wasn't in student government. I should have been because I was in high school, but I was tired of doing sort of like everybody's work because there are only a few people standing at the end of the day and I needed a break. But I got over it. And when I got back into my doctoral program, again, leaving Ohio State, but coming back, I was very early on in my doctoral program back in the leadership seat. 
I actually took a year off from my doctorate to lead the accreditation of my college, which is a big deal. And usually they don't give it to a graduate student, trust me. But the options were limited and I was available. And so ever since then, I've just sort of fitted in as a faculty member, as the chair of a department, as an associate dean, as a dean. So I was moving right along in that revered track when I decided to skip the provostial role. (laughs) It just happened. So in high school, you're in leadership. As you said, you're essentially doing everybody else's job because nobody will. And of course, as you move into the positions you just talked about, that has to change to where you do have the ability or you know how to deploy the ability to get other people to do tasks, to take on assignments and to carry them out. Was that an easy challenge for you, an interesting transition or because, you know, I know for my problem, not a problem. (laughs) You get the best people you can to work with you. And each of them has a select set of skills and roles and responsibilities. I am best when I've got 15 or 20 people around me who know what they're doing, who are really smart and know how to take on tasks. And now, uh, having retired from positions like that and working in a context where I am my own cook and bottle washer, I don't think I'm as effective as <laughs> when I have really good people around me. But, you know, the size of the organization determines that. And so when I landed in my latest position, I have worked to create a team and a team mentality so that we all take on parts of the job and even virtually, which is how I'm working these days. It's wonderful to get the quote unquote team together because everybody has a role. Everybody has things they deliver. They share with each other and things just go better. So it came pretty naturally to me to delegate. And uh, my mother was a delegator. (laughs) She got a lot of things done and she worked well with people. I think I learned a lot of that from her. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. During each of your three presidencies at very large universities, I'll let you name them if you wish to, but major hundreds of millions of dollars, a billion dollar budget scale universities. And in each case, you came up against some issues with the athletic department and took on some big challenges there. Tell me a bit about those instances. That kind of action is sure to gain the president a, a lot of attention and commentary, some of it pretty rough especially in the grocery store. I had the most trouble in the grocery (laughs) store, but I'll I'll talk about that in a minute. So just to set the table, I was a president or a chancellor, they mean the same thing, at an urban public university that belonged to a system, the University of Wisconsin system, and I was in Milwaukee. I had the great privilege of being the president at the University of Cincinnati, which is not a part of a system, but an independent public university, public research university, and then the State University of New York is a system which incorporates 64 campuses. And so all of them had intercollegiate athletics, but I got my training, if you will, at Ohio State. If you work really hard and you lead some really tough committees, as I did, like the finance committee and the compensation and benefits committee, eventually I landed on the athletic council. (laughs) It's a little bit kind of humorous, I think. It's access to the really wonderful part of Ohio State, which is its intercollegiate athletic program. But the reason I say I learned there is when we recruited, I remember specifically Andy Geiger as the athletic director. 
and he had come from Stanford and I was dean of the College of Education. I actually was the chair of the search committee. I knew that we were destined to build an academic enterprise for our student athletes. It was just time and there were other universities building academic learning centers for their athletes. And I said to Andy, you know what? We can't do for the athletes something that we don't offer our general student population, our general student body. And we actually formed a partnership, built an academic center that was in part under the direction of the College of Education and in part under the direction of the athletic department. But what it said to the larger community is that athletes and the general student body are the same. They both deserve to learn and learn well and to be supported in their learning. So I came away from Ohio State in my years there with a great deal of respect for the academic part of being a student athlete. And there was a time, and it, it has resurfaced lately, where the NCAA had an ad going that said something like 99% of our student athletes will go professional in something other than sports. Yeah. So all student athletes have a wonderful opportunity to become leaders in their sport and learn about teamwork and, and pride and discipline and all the things that you learn as, a, as an athlete. But also you have the, the right to be supported, to graduate, to get a degree and to move on. And so as I moved into leadership roles in the university, I kept in mind that the central goal for student athletes is to get an education. So I ran up against a pretty tough wall when I got to Cincinnati. Our student athletes weren't graduating at an appropriate rate and we weren't recruiting with academics in, in the front of our priorities. And I felt that needed to be underscored. And I felt like everybody, the coaches, uh, certainly it was supported by the athletic director at the time I was serving, that we had to have a higher standard. So I came to a point without belaboring anything about personnel issues. I just came to a point where I thought that our commitment to academics had to be modeled in every sector of the university, including athletics. And I made some tough decisions, changed some leadership, and that was chronicled by the media, uh, not only in Cincinnati, but across the country. And I had to stand my ground and I had to explain myself. And I did have to listen to the criticism. I couldn't avoid it. It was in the paper every day. Uh, when I say the grocery store, people come up to me and even a cab driver will say, aren't you the one who fired <laughs> my favorite <thing>? coach? <laughs> and uh, I usually uh, have learned over time to say, I am friend or foe. I can talk to you either way. And trust me, I got about both sides of the I'll issue. But standing tall is uh, required of university presidents. It's the job. You have your values. And I remember saying very explicitly at the press conference, like no other I've ever been to in my life. It was a small room. It was crowded. They were all there with their cameras and their microphones. And I was trying to say something like character counts. And that I remember. I don't remember anything else <laughs> about that interview. But I remember standing my ground. That's what yeah. you are called to do. In passing, you talked about an academic enterprise for athletes. And I'm curious, what does that mean? I mean, does it mean a separate, a certain set of tracks tailored to their schedule? I mean, what does that really mean in practice? Well, I'm, I'm going to speak a little bit, the voice of my role on the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics, which is uh, 
which is an independent group of highly experienced individuals who've served as university presidents and athletic directors. And even we certainly have student athletes on the commission and people who've served in Major League Baseball and the NFL. And so our view is that our role and the role of the university is to protect and to serve the academic, uh, social, health, and welfare needs of all of our students, and especially our student athletes. It doesn't mean that they get priority or privilege. It means that they are working hard. They are giving hours to their sport, hours to their sport. They are traveling during academic instructional days. They have to miss classes. It's our responsibility to give them the supports they need to be successful athletically and academically. And in fact, it's the Knight Commission that said no postseason participation in bowl games, et cetera, if at least 50% of your student athletes aren't absolutely on track to graduate. So we have been a marker for making sure of the, the I would call it the duality of athletic prowess and academic prowess. And that has served us well, and that is as much an issue today in the volatile field of athletic competition, uh, particularly in Division I sports. And we, we need to say a lot more about how important it is to protect the education, welfare, and health of our student athletes. Always going to be a priority. Hanging the threat of being ineligible for bowl games over a Division I team is a very strong incentive to get that graduation rate up and get all the students on track. Well, we all need incentives. I mean, we know what's the right thing to do. You know, we know that. Yeah. But sometimes we fall down and we, you know, we need the support of presidents and their boards and the president to the athletic director to make sure you understand who I am as president and who I want you to be. And quite frankly, most of the population is right there. They want to do that. But we have exceptions and, and we have to deal with it. Yeah. And, and countervailing pressures that you have to navigate. but So many. Yeah. And so many today as the entire ecosystem of athletics is teetering between an a- academic enterprise and a commercial enterprise. It's a hard place to be. Yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to ask you about next. You're, you've been on the Knight Commission while the changes allowing athletes to benefit from their name, image, likeness, NIL. You've had the ringside seat as that, is, as that has come about. What's your sense of how it's playing out in these early months? And in the long run, where do you see it going? Well, I think it's a fast train that we have to get more control of, if you will. Everybody started down a path of developing policy for this new um, regimen of name, image, and likeness. And quite frankly, I think there's a, a place for this process in Uh, intercollegiate athletics without moving to the ultimate, which is uh, what people call pay for play. I think at a point at which the NCAA, the Intercollegiate Athletics Association, sort of pulled back and the issue landed at the states and states have, you know, 20 plus states, probably more now, 30 plus states have different rules and regulations, different laws for NIL, which is confusing the integrity of conferences and intercollegiate play around the country because universities live in states and states have different policies. And, you know, people are hoping that the Congress will resolve this, but that, as you know, is a complicated, complex degree of unity that's required from the Senate and the House to come up with a strategy. So 
I really think, A, that that may end up being a congressional help assist to get a complementary policy across the states. Uh, So right now there's a good deal of chaos and individualization that's making it difficult for us to see the big picture. But I think we can get there. There has been a process launched by the Division I board of the NCAA to look at the Constitution and to plan forward for settling a more comprehensive plan for NIL, uh, for looking at our conference structure. And we are now in like the fourth phase of policymaking to get this right. I think we're looking very closely at football and particularly the college football playoff. We're looking uh, to a particular transformation team that is in place for Division One. I'm confident that uh, they will come out on the right side of these issues. There's certainly engaging the Knight Commission and some of our reports in their thinking. So I'm very optimistic. I think if we had a bit more unification amongst ourselves, some congressional help might be appropriate. We're getting some advice from the Supreme Court as well. I mean, (laughs) everybody's involved. But as a leadership issue, I believe that university presidents and conference commissioners And athletic directors can find their way. They need a lot of support from their boards of trustees to get it right because there's so much competition pressure from all of us, from alums, from all of us who love the sport. Uh, We all have our opinions. We all want it to go on. But, you know, policy has to make sense. And and I'm pretty confident we'll get there. But right now, it's um, it's kind of wild wild. west. Yeah. I mean, states that want to capture the best football players, I would imagine, are thinking about how do I set the economics up better here than my neighboring state or my conference rival and all the great talent will want to come here. Is that the kind of thing that's happening? Uh, You pretty much nailed it. This affects even within conferences. uh, You know, we used to be the Big Ten sort of situated in in the Midwest, and that has changed a lot. So we have less alignment state to state. And I think using this as a recruitment vehicle is exactly what we didn't really want to have happen um, because we didn't sort of create the strategy ahead of the announcement that it's happening. And now we have just tumbled our way into it. And uh, this is a leadership issue like no other. University presidents have values. They stand for something. They have to be vocal. We are organized into conferences led by commissioners, but the conferences are populated by university presidents. So once again, it comes to us to stand up for organizing this in a way that we have the controls we want and we have the competition we want, but it can't go crazy. It can't go wild. Yeah. Yeah. It's a pretty fine, maybe non-existent line between explicitly being pay for play and basically shopping athletes based on the financial incentives that your state allows versus another state. That's a fine, fine distinction. And the the divide has come just to say uh, March Madness, which we are approaching is all run by the NCAA. It's all coordinated. Everybody has a chance. What's so much fun about March Madness is the Cinderella teams that make it way beyond, you know, punching way above their weight. And it's always exciting. On the other hand, uh, the college football playoff is a separate entity. It does not exist in the umbrella of the NCAA. It does not fund in any way the NCAA as basketball does. 
And those are corrections that are front and center on yeah, uh, yeah. what we need to resolve. But without getting into an array of complexities, I'm just saying this has got to be resolved. Some of my listeners live outside of the United States, and for their benefit, March Madness <laughs> is a cultural phenomenon in the United States that centers on a basketball tournament among all of the colleges leading up to a great final. But it's several week long campaign with lots of media coverage. And and yes, it's true, as Nancy said, sometimes a, a Cinderella team, you know, the poor, poor team you never thought would make a thing upsets some of the big kids and now and then even finds themselves at the big kids table in the final. So I'm not even all that much of a basketball fan, but I can't, I can't help but follow the last week or two of final four. Well, we had a little bit of that flavor in Cincinnati because the university of Cincinnati progressed in the college football playoff brackets to a point where they really could have engaged in the, in the final competition. And it was incredibly exciting and it lit up everybody. And then along came the Bengals yeah. And they made it to the, the professional, the professional I mean, team of Cincinnati. Yeah. yeah. We've had quite a year. Yes. And you're right. That spread all across Ohio with a lot of pride. Everywhere. Yes, it did. Which was very good for the state. I mean, everybody got involved in the Super Bowl. As a born and raised at Southeastern Ohio and Appalachian girl, you must have been thrilled to see Joe Burroughs, the kid from small town, Southeast Ohio, get the, the Heisman Trophy, the top honor in college football, and then go on to join the Cincinnati Bengals, which were sort of largely a seller team, never quite getting anything much done. And in like his second year, lead that team all the way to the Super Bowl. You must have been thrilled. It's such an amazing story. And coming from Appalachia, knowing the small community he came from, which wasn't really Athens itself, but in the surrounding area, for him to speak to the needs of his community in accepting this universally superstar award called the Heisman Trophy was exceptional in its own right. And as a result of that, a kind of GoFundMe strategy developed that night, resulting in uh, somewhere around upwards of $600,000 in contributions now crashing over the million dollar level. It's now a standing fund of the Foundation for Appalachian Ohio, and people give to it every day. And every time Joe Burrow speaks to food insecurity, in southeastern Ohio, people give more. It is a model for athletes around the country and around the world. It shows you the power of a stellar, successful athlete and what they can do when their words focus on the needs of others. It's the best story ever. And I think he will have an immense impact on uh, the many athletes pro and collegiate, who see the social needs of this country and speak toward them. And I think that's pretty impressive. And he's all Ohio. He's all Athens and the small community he comes from around there. He's just a joy to watch. And I, I bet in a year, we'll look back, we'll see some spillover effect to other food banks that are helping some of the food insecure, poor regions of the country. It's a, it's a great ripple effect. He's fabulous. The voice of movie stars, rock stars, musicians, athletes. Lots of power. It sways all of us. And for them to speak in such positive ways about their communities, that's just uh, exemplary. And and to just be a great quarterback and a lovely person, it's it's, it's the real deal. Yeah, full package. Right. So, Nancy, a lot of what we hear bandied about in the media and public conversation these days about universities 
is pretty disparaging. You know, who needs higher ed? I mean, and I'm not talking about the cost of getting a degree issues, but just a really challenging questioning the integrity of the institution, uh, the motives, their left-leaning cultural indoctrination institutions. You've been in universities your whole career and have written about university and its role in society. What do you think, like your book, A New University, what needs to be new? And what do you make of this, what I would call crisis of confidence higher education seems to be experiencing? Well, the thing I've always thought about in university is that we are part of a larger social context. And right now, the social context is very divisive. We have our wins and losses. We have our likes and our dislikes. And there are hard lines between good and evil (laughs) and what people think is the right thing to do and the wrong thing to do. And many of our public social institutions are being questioned in terms of their ability to serve the needs of our society. The wrong thing to do is to be defensive about these criticisms. I think we have to listen very closely to what people are saying. Are they alienated from what it is that we do? Do they? Why is it they do not see purpose? Why is it that we've not successfully been able to claim what we know to be true, which is that we do advance the socioeconomic welfare of our graduates? There, that's a fact. We have the statistics, but as you also know about our current society, uh, the pulse of our society is the facts don't always matter. So we have to work harder at, at explaining to people that the workforce you want to join, 70 to 80% of those jobs are going to require some education beyond high school. And if, if I had a wand, I would say that it's time to extend our commitment to 12 grades to 14. It would be very simple to just say community college or two more years is what's required in this economy, period, amen. No matter what you think about the societal, ideological views of higher education, which is to be debated and is being debated, you need a good job. You need to move up in your own socioeconomic standing and to be enlightened along the way, read a book, Find out what people are saying in the world. These are really important. Get your civic democracy hat on. Understand how important it is to be a good citizen. These are all characteristics of advanced education. And our community colleges are the workhorse of employment. They offer credentials. They offer badges. They do offer two-year degrees. You do transfer to a four-year institution. But I think what's really helping us is that we're not only talking about get a degree or get a badge or get a credential, we're talking about social mobility. Are you better off? Are you leading your family into a new plateau where expectations to advance your education are commonplace? And are you benefiting from that and is your family? So there is one unequivocal truth. If you are better educated, your children are going to be better educated. You are going to be healthier. Your children are going to be healthier. You're going to be less reliant on social services because you're making your own way. You're going to vote more often and be the good citizen that we know we need you to be. And so universities are a pathway. Do we need to be more engaged in the social enterprise? Absolutely. I've spent my entire life building partnerships with local communities. And in fact, when I was at Ohio State, 
I think what we did is we held hands and we walked across High Street to the neighborhoods across our street and said, your welfare matters to us and we should be a player in making your life better because we live in communities. We live in cities. We live in states. We, we live, live together. States. We live together. And our walls need to be uh, more porous, more flexible. We need in and out. And this is just as true for our international community. Right now, I'm working on Afghan resettlement, which just became Ukraine resettlement. Yeah. We are a destination for people from around the world. And universities, our universities, our university systems are pivotal as that welcome U.S. enterprise. And we're, we're making great strides in naming our campuses as places where immigrant families can come, where professors can be safe as they've exiled from their countries and where students can come and study. I never saw myself as an immigration specialist, but I am knee deep into refugee resettlement. And and again, I see the role of universities as so critical to welcoming people in estranged uh, countries to our land. So when you wrote a new kind of university, what were you talking about making new? What were you talking about leaving behind? Uh, Leaving behind our isolation, building permanent partnerships with community, with social entities, being for our states, their economic agenda. In New York, when I was at SUNY, it was very clear that the role of the State University of New York was to be the economic engine for the state, to produce a workforce, to be inventive. We had a huge nanotechnology facility to build chips in partnership. And now what? We have a shortage of chips. We were building chips and we were building them across commercial enterprises where people were partnering, not competing. This is our role, our public good, increasing the quality of our health care, working with our elementary and secondary schools, caring about early childhood. This is what universities do. And I think when we wrote that book, we were feeling very isolated from the common good. And what we did was lift up uh, leadership examples. We lifted up universities that were doing the right thing. My whole role at University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee was a thing called the Milwaukee idea that the boundaries of the university were the boundaries of the community. This is the kind of university I want to be a part of. I want to lead. I want to see evolve. So we're no longer that ivory tower. I don't even know where the ivory tower is. I can't find it on the campus. And the fact that we... There's no ivory on the Ohio State campus. We both know that. <laughs> it's, there, it is exactly. Uh, physically and intellectually and morally, this is our value to our country. And so I, I now work with public systems of higher education. And they, they live from Maine to California, Alaska and Hawaii to the Midwest and the West. And I see the power of systems joined together to work together to be that societal force. And I want to see us be that, you know, force of nature, your enterprise, what you, what you join and what you've given your life to, you want to see it grow and serve. And so it's all about that new kind of service, getting over ourselves, getting around ourselves, (laughs) getting out of the way and being that good partner. You've also written about systemness. What does that mean? What did you mean with that? Well, you know, this is a hard one for Ohio because it's organized differently at the post-secondary level 
Uh, we have a cabinet level position, a department of higher education. But at SUNY, which is the State University of New York, we have 64 campuses under one umbrella, led by one board and one chancellor. So I quickly learned that the only way we were going to make a dent in New York's economy is to find a better way to work together. Some would call it the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. SUNY is the most amazing organization. There are four flagships, you know, big research universities, four medical schools. There's a veterinary school. There's Cornell. Four colleges in Cornell are a part of SUNY. There are 30 community colleges, 16 comprehensives. I mean, the Fashion Institute for Technology is a design school in Manhattan. This is amazing. What my challenge was is to get us to work more effectively together for the good of the state. That's called systemness. Okay. Working not competitively. I mean, competition is good and we all compete to be the best. But what can we do together that we could not do if we weren't a unified system, one board, one chancellor, one set of policies to make life better for our students? And that's our whole goal. By the way, we want to graduate <laughs> students. That's our job. And we want them to enter the uh, social class better off than when they came in. And we also want to reduce the cost of our enterprise. And those are things I think best done under the leadership of a, a coordinated set of systems campuses. And, and to many degrees, Ohio does operate that way. We have a convening council of universities that talk about common problems, but the impetus of having board policy is like no other. You can incentivize, we talked about this earlier, right. you can incentivize participation at a higher level. And that's what moves the dial. Yeah, yeah. Let's shift gears a little bit. I want to explore some aspects of, of leadership with you given all the different hats you've had and seats you've sat in. You know, Some would say women have to lead differently than men. I mean, you can't adopt the same sort of practices or styles that a man would do. They just don't work the same. Would you agree with that? I might. <laughs> it's a big question. I try to be very collaborative. I try to partner up as best I can. There is a view that that's uh, unique to my gender. I tend to see my role as a, as a female leader in the context of my own theory of leadership. And if that has a gender bias, so be it. But I came to the conclusion years ago that I needed to know what I thought about my own leadership style. And I tested that out in Milwaukee. I had great opportunity to learn while at Ohio State. But when I became a president, boy, I had to, uh, in that case, I was called a chancellor. I had to really think about this. And my, my vision really is above all to serve and to have a goal of, of service as, as an entity and to reach that vision at the hands of many. I love the fact that as a president and as a chancellor, I made every effort to engage with the broader community before we set in stone where we were going to go for the next five to 10 years. That that kind of collaboration, that kind of listening, that kind of understanding of what people believe the institution can do is critical. I would be no good sitting in a room by myself. A, nothing would happen. And B, <laughs> it would be mine, not yours, not ours. And from that, I've learned that actions uh, speak louder than words and that we have to be very explicit about our goals, measure our goals, stand for a number, 
that drives you. Uh, it's hard to get to that number, but right now we're working on student success. We don't have enough students educated in this country to the workforce demands. You have to set a goal all the way back from no child left behind to Obama's moonshot. We need to educate more people and we need to reach a number. And then I think we need sustainability. Uh, there's a lot of uproar in the higher ed community, changing leadership. Where do we go now? What's the legislature telling us? What does the governor want? But in, in the middle of all that, we have to be directional, persistent, stay the course, and hold ourselves accountable. So with that kind of theory of leadership and believing that vision can only be achieved when you engage the entire constituency, that has served me well. I believe that people remember those times when we came together and how we came together. And it wasn't just me. It was us. And that felt good to me. Yeah. Women, I don't know. You know, back to your question, which I totally dodged. I just can't <laughs> come out and say it's better if a woman is in charge. I think we have examples on both sides of the aisle, but I think it requires an opening up and a reaching out that has some gender qualities to it, caring and being in charge many times of families where we were the one that bound them together. I also feel like we have a special responsibility as women. I have been in many rooms as the only woman and I have used that, it's not an asset, but I've used that condition to speak. And what are they going to do? They can't not listen to you. You're the only woman in the room. You get a license to speak. Use your voice and use it in, uh, in compassionate, uh, thoughtful ways. And if that's a characteristic of gender, I'm proud to be a woman. <laughs> Let me turn the question the other way around. I think you've answered it obliquely in describing your leadership philosophy, but you know, another common received wisdom that's widespread in our society sometimes goes by the shorthand, iron sharpens iron. But the underlying premise is, in many people's minds, competition is the one way, the only way, or at least the best way to get the best out of people, to really drive achievement. That seems at odds with collaborating. What do you, how do you think about that tension? Or is it a false dichotomy? It might be a false dichotomy. I think what drives us is our own ambition. I'm doing a lot of work in the area called improvement science that actually emulates out of Deming's work years ago, where improvement is the science of getting better. And uh, at Children's Hospital, there's a motto, we want to be the best at getting better. So I think goals really do matter. And I think competition against the goal is what drives us. I'm not competing with another system to get there first. I'm competing against a deficit that we need to correct. And I'd love to get there first if I believe that deficit is what needs to be fixed. But I'd really rather go New York with California. I'd really rather work with my adjacent states to partner up to meet the goal. The goal is the competition, not the other person to my left or right. Yeah. And if you can walk into that and incentivize changes in behavior, that's what this is all about. Improving our outcomes by changing our behavior to work more effectively, to be the best at getting better, then that is motivation enough. 
and and the recognition will follow. Every time we've had a university burst through, it's unassumed. I mean, one study we have is what universities in this country are getting students into the middle class faster and bigger and better than others. And they named universities that are not used to being in the limelight. But you know what? They were doing the work. They're doing they the job. Yeah. They absolutely were. Yeah. And that's the kind of competition I want, that we have a shared goal. And I want to get there as fast as I can. I'd like to bring you with me. Yeah. Very interesting. It's time, I think, to shift gears even a little more, because you, your experience and your wisdom offers so many insights for young people, especially young women, at early stages of their career. And we've exposed many of them just in the course of our chat. But let me focus on that a little more explicitly. As as you look back, is there something you wish your younger self had known earlier or realized earlier? Well, you know, I, I, Kathy, I've had, like you, lots of opportunities to speak with young women. And I don't know how quickly I'll say this to my five-year-old granddaughter, but, you know, get a plan. (laughs) Where are you going? And if you don't have the plan, you're not going to get there. And, And a part of it is we don't often offer the architecture to even think about where you're going. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what's out there. So exposure to what's out there, you, exposure to you, exposure to the many women who are serving in leadership roles today. I mean, from newscasters on out, you see it every day. Do you want to be that? Does that look like something you'd like to do? And by the time you're in college, a plan does matter. So I do talk to people, young women especially, about when I became more planful and it took me a while. It took me more like 30 years, not 18 or 19. But I think I might have made different choices all along the way if I had earlier exposure to people I admire saying to me, this is on you. You are going to become who you want to become. And talking to a lot of people, looking at your relatives and what they've achieved, your loved ones, what your friends are doing, what they're thinking about. We always talk about networking. I don't know if I was ever very good at it, but the more I learn about it at my late age, the more I value being in these various circles and networks like Kathy and I are together uh, with the International Women's Forum. And it's a place where you see such uh, magnificent role models, but the plan matters. And, And even stepping off the plan, I can remember when I was, getting ready to maybe make a move, I would enter into this sort of disequilibrium that I provided myself. I knew I was in it. I knew I didn't know where I was going to come out. I knew there was a future there, but I had to think really hard about it. And when I got there, I kind of closed that door for a while and I didn't open it again till I got that, whatever, seven year itch, I don't know, uh, (laughs) where I said, you know, for me, just for me, I love watching leaders. And then I want to become one. I served a lot of presidents. I served many provosts. I served many deans in my time at Ohio State. That 30 plus years, I watched every one of them. Yeah. And I borrowed and selected the things I liked and maybe some things I hoped I never did. Uh, <laughs> and I'm sure people watch me and say the same thing. Whatever you do, don't do what she did. But I've learned from that. And I think you emulate, you rise 
and I think it came from my experience in the YWCA, but this lift as you climb, people do sometimes disparage women for not being helpful to other women. And this lift as you climb seems like a perfect metaphor for always being helpful to others as you advance and sharing what worked, what didn't work. And I'm, I'm sort of outspoken about when all my mentors were men, my high school teachers who inspired me were women. But when I got to college and advanced in my career, the people who were already in those jobs were mostly men. I, I used to say, you know, I was the 25th president of Cincinnati and the first woman. Well, it took a while, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> 24 <laughs> other, <laughs> but I'm happy. I think that's charming, but uh, I'm impatient. And I do think that I have modeled myself after people I respect and appreciate. And that makes us all better, I think. I would agree with you completely. Everyone around you that you have the opportunity to observe is in a sense, a mentor right there. Totally. It's not a meeting by meeting mentorship. It's a modeling mentorship. But if you're watching and looking and taking notes on both sides of that ledger. I want to be like that. And I will never do that. Uh, you'll learn a lot along the way. You don't even have to ask permission. No, it's right there, right in front of you. Yeah. You don't yeah. have to be assigned a mentor to be mentored. And that's a big lesson learned. Just keep your eyes open. And as your experience shows, there may be value to having a mentor or a person that you look at who looks like you might sort of buoy your confidence a bit that someone like me can do that. Yep. But, it, you know, your experience proves it's clearly not altogether true that if I can't see it, I can't be it. Well, you know, in my day, there were kingmakers. Now I hope there are many, many queenmakers. But <laughs> uh, you had to go to the men. You needed a letter of recommendation. You mostly wanted to be nominated. I haven't even talked about, nor am I going to, the searches I didn't rise to the top, the one I lost, the two I lost, the three I lost. But I was captive to the people who were in the decision-making roles. And to fight that, the best way to fight that is to get into one yourself. Yep. And in the meantime, you need them and they can help you. And I think, you know, we shouldn't have to ask people, should, you know, how many of us just think someday they're going to tap me on the shoulder and they're going to anoint me as the thing I always wanted to be. Well, guess what? That doesn't really happen. <laughs> you have to play into the system. There's a, there's a process here, and, and we value that process. Searches are one of the most coveted processes of the academy. And, and we get in trouble when we don't search in the kind of open way that people call for and expect. And it's hard on the person who gets a job without a search. Yeah, You're not legitimized in, in many respects. It's tough. It's very tough. We're very close to time, so I want to ask you again. Think about the young young women starting out in their career, early phase career, who do aspire to leadership. Any particular words of advice you would give to them? Well, I think particularly in the academy, be aware of what your knowledge base is. Become expert in your discipline. That doesn't apply just to the academy. That applies to everybody. Become expert at what you do. I'm sure this is exactly how you were honed, Kathy, in your capacity and abilities. Be good at what you do and who you say you are. Keep an eye on where the leadership opportunities are in your sector. 
do your own professional development. I think it matters to show that you have reached out. A lot of candidates for university presidencies, people who aspire to that, uh, like to go to the Harvard Management Institute, that's very prestigious. I uh, have co-directed a leadership institute for the Association of Governing Boards, which is all about people who want to be presidents. And we talk to them about their own development and what the challenges of the role are. I think to see that on your credentials, uh, begin to build your resume. I sometimes think academics are the best at this. I mean, in the end, I probably my resume was probably 40 pages long because I put everything but the kitchen sink in there. You know, I put every <laughs> little speech and every article, but I have a record of what I did. And if I needed to show it to someone to convince them that I know what I'm doing in the modern day, you might call that a portfolio where you are very selective about what you enter in, and that's your, your choice. It used to be called a transcript, but I think there's a much more elaborate concept of documenting work, much like an artist would do, keeping a record of your accomplishments and naming what you do. Don't say, well, I, I played it all around a little bit with 4-H. No, I was the vice chair of the blah, blah, blah. This is really important. This shows leadership at a very early age. So that early documentation, we're working on a a project right now to start that documentation process in the eighth grade. We could start it earlier, but eighth grade going into high school, I want to know what you've done because it is a demonstration of leadership. So with all that in mind, taking care of your own professional development, aspiring within your sector, knowing what the jobs are, building your own credential of what you know and know well, I think that's going to reap lots of benefits. And I think we're going to see that person, that young woman, hopefully as a leader as time goes on. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com. This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most everywhere podcasts are found. To be the first to know when the next episode drops, head over to interastra.space.